it's great to have everybody on here. I had a chance to see the film um, several weeks ago, actually, here. I'm, I'm in the Bay Area, and so I saw it um, at Skywalker Sound, which was awesome. They have a wonderful Atmos stage, and I can tell you, people were definitely talking about the work that you guys did, so I'm really excited to have everybody. Well, I'd love to start this conversation with just finding out about the inception of this project. I feel like many of you have worked with director uh, Spike Lee in, in the past, and I feel like he doesn't do a film every year, but he's a director that when he does have a film, he definitely wants uh, his team involved. He wants his close-hand collaborators, and many of you have worked with him in the past, but when did each of you guys first find out about the project and what were your thoughts? Because it was a, a film that came together pretty quickly, I guess, in terms of, you know, this the story is based on a book and the rights were purchased to make a film and Spike was brought on board to do that. But, you know, when did you first hear about the project and what your initial thoughts? Uh, oh, this is Tom. I, I first heard about it uh, in early, probably early February or maybe late January when uh, Phil Stockton contacted me. To do the mix, uh, so that that was my first uh, ex exposure to the story, and I had never heard the story before, and it was fascinating. Yeah, I think for me, this is Terrence. You know, Spike. Um, our relationship is a little different than most um, uh, composer-director relationships. He calls me when just about when he's got everything done in terms of going into pre-production. So um, when he called me and told me about the story, I was kind of like. Tom, I had never heard the story. As a matter of fact, I thought it was fiction. I didn't know it was a true story. Um, but he sent me the script, and um, I was excited. I feel actually still felt and still feel very honored to have participated in that. Uh, as do I. For me, it was the first time I worked with Spike. He's called me several times for other things, and uh, for various reasons, I haven't been available because I've been uh doing something else when he you know he, he and this came together pretty quickly uh but i was it was pretty impressive spike himself called me which is unusual for a uh production mixer usually i'm used to having a producer or a production manager call me but spike called and like dude i need to do the movie and he's, and he's very uh as i'm sure the other two get along here will know he's very insistent when he's uh when he's got the bit between his teeth he will not uh, uh stop and he was very uh Fun, I, I, you know. And I was I was actually available. I was holding off to commit because um, my wife and I try to alternate working. Um, so one of us will do the childcare, and uh, I was so I was sort of dragging my feet, and he was like, "No, no, you got to do it. You got to do it." Right, right, <laughs> and he was he was very convincing. Right. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, part of it was also the appeal of the project. It was super interesting. I love the script. I, you know, and it was a chance to work with Spike. Uh, and be in town, so I could still, you know. What, what what can you say about the pre-production process for you guys? Like, how does he involve you differently than other directors? Because just knowing how close he is to his material and his style of filmmaking, how does he treat his sound team? How does he treat his music? Like, how early on does he incorporate everybody? Well, well, for me, I, I mean, like I said, I get, I get pulled in real quick, you know, um, well, even before he's shooting. You know, he'll call me up, you know, just like Drew said, man, you know, he'll be excited. You know, he actually told me, he said, you know, this is going to be another Malcolm X, man. This is going to be big. We have to, you know, really, really have something unique for the school. And I'm like, okay. And then when I read the script and, and, and learned about the story, I was just totally blown away with it, you know. And the, the, the beautiful thing about Spike's team is, for me, is that, man, 
just with every step along the way, you know that the film is going to ramp up. So by the time that I finish, and I know Tommy gets it, man, you know, he puts his seal of approval on. I've watched him work one time years ago when I got a chance to see uh, what he does, and it just brings all of those elements together, man, to make the final statement that's real powerful. In the editing, in editorial, and then in the sound editing, it, it, it does, it ramps up. Uh, certainly the final film, I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff when we're shooting, but the final film is beautifully, uh, you know, balanced and cleverly arranged in a way that, that goes beyond what was initially obvious when we were shooting, you know? Mm. And, it's you know, really, during the mix, I, I, I don't usually get involved with the project until fairly close to the end once the, you know, the sound elements have been turned over and they're sort of close to a rock picture. Uh, they'll invite me to a screening um, and uh, and then maybe I'll get to do a tent mix. Uh, but that's really the only involvement I have before the, the final mix begins. And uh, um, Spike is, is certainly has a style. I mean, I've worked on many, many of his films, as you know. Uh, and and he's always he's always coming up with ideas in the mix. Um, for example, in in Black Klansman, in in the scene where the where the uh, Kwame Ture is giving the speech, you hear someone in the audience shouting, uh, "Boom shakalaka!" Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> it happened it happened several times during that scene. Right. And that was an idea that Spike had at the mix. He said, "Tom, get a mic. I want to record." And uh -huh. you know. <laughs> he right. recorded them yeah. and we placed them in. Uh, and he's always sw swinging things around the room from left to right. Or, you know, he says, hey, Tom, pan that over to the left. You know, right. that, that, he's always coming up with fresh ideas, very spontaneous. And, and he always knows what he wants. He's very, very, very rarely indecisive. Yeah, right. No, he's a very strong decision maker on the day. It's pretty impressive to see, you know, on the production, this was a short shoot. I mean, it looks, you know, it, it looks great and it, it, it's, it looks big. We had some big crowd scenes and all that, but it was done on a very uh, uh, tight schedule. You know, the, the entire Kwame Ture uh, sequence was shot in one day. Right. All mm. those reaction shots, all the, you know, uh, uh, the actor himself, you know, on stage, everybody, it was all done in one day and it's a lot to do. Uh, and right. he orchestrates it, you know, Spike is, is running that set in a very uh, uh, um, commanding way. You know, it's like, we're here, we're there. Okay, that's good for that. Now come over here and shoot this. Uh, yeah, exactly. It happens, and he's very, he's very decisive and very strong. Uh, uh, and he's strong, quick, man. He knows, he's, he's, yeah. he, knows what, he knows what he's doing, but he's also very quick. You know, I was only on, I was on set for More Better Blues, man, uh, because, you know, I was there as a consultant working with Denzel. And I just felt so sorry for the continuity person, man, because they would finish this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to keep. To it's hard to keep up. Yeah, man, and like, but you know, you see people moving props back around to get it back to where they originally were, and Spike is like saying speed. And I'm like, wow, just get yeah. out of the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, he's uh, he, he's pushing it forward, and and you know, and motivated. It's, it's pretty impressive to keep that energy level up. All day, every day, right. and early. The thing that, that's that respected a lot of people is that it's early. We're on set at 6 a.m. every day. That's the spike thing. He starts early. I don't oh, know. No. He, he's no, texting me at like 5 a.m. Yeah. I'm like, what? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when I lived in Brooklyn, when we both lived in Brooklyn, man, if he knew I was in town, I'd get a call. 
Terrence, 7 o'clock. Terrence, we got to meet here at 8. I'm like, damn, bro, okay. <laughs> Could have told me last yeah. night. Yeah, I'd I love to hear about the amount of music. Now, original music that Terrence, you were handling, and also needle drop tracks. There's a lot of you know, music from the 70s that are throughout. How can you guys describe his thought of where music lands and how you guys are figuring out placement, like the initial overview of the film? Because there's an incredible dynamic. It carries from scene to scene. It has wonderful transitions with music and sound. How would everybody describe his thought and placement of music? Well, well, for me, man, it would all splice movies. And I mean literally all of them. They've all paid homage to the African-American experience in music. If you look at it from, wide, from a wide array of musical genres and styles. Uh, and I've always respected that in him. And one of the things that we've always, we used to talk about when we first started working together is how we wanted to make these stories universal. We wanted to come at, uh, uh, um, added in a very traditional way of, of scoring films. So I, I don't, I think we've always used orchestra for just about every film that I've worked on with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, you know, like Tommy was saying, you know, he's very decisive. So when we have a spotting session, the spotting session is basically him telling me where he wants the music to go. Cause, you know, he's been working on it. He's been sitting in the editing room. He's been thinking about it. And he says, okay, I think I need music here, not there, not here. Now, sometimes I'll say, hey, man, you think you want music here? And he'll be like, no, 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 we're good there. You know, so he's very decisive about that. And like, you know, like we were saying earlier, it really helps to to define his, his style, his signature mm-hmm. style. You know, I was thinking about this the other day, and I don't know how the other guys feel, but working with him has helped me def- uh, de- 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 to define a style of film scoring that works with him, but probably wouldn't work with other people. And I've had to develop skills, you know, <clears throat> that are a little different because of it, because he likes to hear very melodic themes on the scenes that have like very important information. So you have to figure out a way to kind of keep the melody going, but not have it be intrusive. So both uh, Ron's theme and the main theme have like an electric guitar or kind of lead line. It seems to me that, was that something that you proposed or he was asking for? No, it's something that I can come up with. You know, Spike had said that he wanted to have a R&B band to be part of the score. And I'm like, okay, great. That'll be, you know, perfect because it's the 70s. And I have an electric band right now. But the thing that I thought of, the reason why I use electric guitar is because you know, this is the 70s, and you see the scene with Stokely Carmichael, we understand what was going on in our country at the time, and it harkened back to a time for me when Jimi Hendrix played the National Anthem. And I remember, you know, hearing that as a kid, and with that screaming guitar, it seemed to kind of, it was a musical manifestation of the, 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 the frustration a lot of people felt in this country, trying to say that we're Americans too. So... I thought with everything that was going on in this film, especially the way the film ends, it was appropriate to have that guitar to kind of represent that sound in the film. And I think it's it's one of the most distinctive things about that score. I mean, to me, when I heard the yeah. score and I, and I heard that guitar, oh my God, it's an electric guitar leading a whole orchestral orchestra. It's amazing. But it's, it's, it's a lush music. score. It's a beautiful lush score, but it does have an electric lead, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Thank and, you. and I just thought that was a brilliant, brilliant idea because it really yeah. puts you right in that time. It really does. And, the, and yet the, you know, the, the lushness of the score is very much, you know, in Spike's style and Terrence's style. So, uh, well, and this thank was you. a funny combination. Yeah. Thank you. You know, the interesting yeah. thing about you saying that, you know, I was talking with somebody earlier about the film earlier this week. And the thing that I've been saying about this, this particular film in general, and, and Tommy, maybe you could speak to this too, but it seems like this film is the culmination of every film we've worked on. You know, you, from, from the dolly shot to the editing, to the way it looks, mm-hmm. the way it sounds, just everything, you know, uh, I, and I, I totally I, agree. I, <laughs> yes, I agree. It incorporates well, I think, every, I think every he's, been, he's been building up to it. He's where he's been wanting to go. You know? Yeah. And including including the, the documentary footage at the end, which is just super powerful. Yep. You know, right. it, it, it combines the elements of things that he's worked on for years of documentary, you know, with the, you know, with the narrative. It's fantastic in that way, you know. No, I, say, I didn't know. I didn't know that Prince track. I didn't know that Prince track. The uh, Mary Will Eat for Me. It's beautiful at the end. Oh, thank did he, you. Did thank he you. always have that in mind? Did he know? Did you? Did you? Yeah. Did he know that. Yeah, he knew he wanted. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a cue from um, uh, Inside Man. And uh, you know, this is the thing with Spike. When Spike finds something melodic that he loves. He is the biggest champion for it, you know. Wow. It's 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 one of the things I've always had this. <laughs> I've always had this image of Spike and Tommy sitting at the final mix, and Tommy going, "Spike, you know the music's kind of loud." And he goes, "No, turn it up," because there's times. <laughs> <laughs> because there, there's times when he plays the music like it's another character in the show. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And just just to lead into that. But I thought, Tom, what can you say about him using the space? Because the phone ring, every time it happened, somebody, I feel like, in the audience was not expecting. And it was incredibly effective in terms of the purpose. And it's something as simple as the phone ring. How can you describe Spike's idea of sound? Because he uses it in this incredible, like, activating way that really catches the audience, brings attention to... But how do you describe kind of his understanding of sound and also placement within, you know, the surround field? Well, obviously... The ticking clock. (laughs) Uh, The ticking clock was, yes. That was something that he actually asked me to make very loud at the end, the last (laughs) shot of David Duke. Um... Uh, and place in the, put that in the surrounds. You know, he likes to have stuff in the surrounds. All of the, the Kwame Ture sequence, all of those call outs and everything, that was, a lot of that was group ADR. There was some of it was production, uh, but they were very specifically placed. You know, he wanted to hear them in the surrounds in the, in the scene with uh, the black power, white power, where they're chanting um, during the um, Birth of a Nation sequence. Uh, the Harry Belafonte Birth of the Nation sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very specific about wanting to have all of those, you know, voices coming from everywhere, all around us. Um, this And this goes back, I mean, I remember on, on school days uh, in 1984, when we were working in Dolby Stereo, Matrix, yeah. him wanting to swing mm-hmm. things from left to right, you know, always telling me to, it was the first film I worked with him on, and that, you know, I loved working with him because he was like really just wanting to experiment all the time with this kind of placement of things. 
off screen. How about for you, Terrence? How, how would you describe Spike's kind of uh, relationship to you of talking musically? Like, what's the language? How do you guys connect? How do you collaborate? What, what's yeah? What's like? Spike has this thing of constantly telling me I don't know much about music, and I had to bust him on it one time because yeah. first of all, he's like a little music historian. You know what I mean? You know, not only <laughs> not, not only oh, it's true. not only popular, yeah, not only popular music, not only popular music, but film music as well. And I'll never forget, man. We were—I can't remember what film it was, uh, but we were recording at Manhattan Center Studios in New York, and the string players were playing. Like the entire section was playing violin one, two, then viola, cello, bass. They were all playing, and Spike goes. Hey man, the viola's out of tune. And I said, yeah. And I said, hold up, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> How could you hear that the violas were out of tune? And then you know, and because they were. And I went out there and, I <laughs> and did another tape. And I came back and I told him, I said, don't you ever tell me again that you don't know anything about music because most people wouldn't hear it, that type of detail. But that's mm-hmm. the way that he is. So when we have conversations about music. You know, he definitely knows what it is that he wants. He definitely knows what it is that he's looking for. When I first started working with him, he said, listen, man, I don't like underscoring. I don't need you to hit a door when it closes or anything like that. He says, I want people to walk away humming the themes for the films. That's wonderful. It's, it's interesting. I love looking in at, at the budgets of a film that Spike Lee does. He seems, like you said, to work quick. He, under, he knows exactly what he wants. And ultimately, he doesn't want anyone to tell him what to do. He's a true artist. He's a true filmmaker. Now, I, I, I just hint at the budget because I imagine that you guys want to do your best work, but also there's a consideration of how much time you can have to spend on these projects. Is there any, you know... Oh, very much so that's an issue. He's actually, it's pretty remarkable because there's a lot of people who are producer directors, but they really have someone else as the producer. They're listed as a producer, and, and ultimately they are the final decision maker, but... Spike's wearing both hats all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he is, he is 100% the producer at the same time that he's a director. And it's hard because sometimes those, uh, um, you know, those two people are working across purposes occasionally because it's, you know, the producer's trying to rein in the director. But Spike is doing both, full-time, all the time. He's reining in everybody else. Uh, he's very aware of the cost of things. And, uh, and not, uh, not, not only... Not only very very aware, I think he doesn't get the credit mm. for you know I don't maybe I'm wrong I could be wrong but I don't think Spike has ever really blown any budget you know mm. there's been a couple of times that I that I've worked with him where I know that he fought to get more money for the score because he saved the money in production yeah I believe that yeah yeah and he's he's a very very efficient frugal filmmaker on set i mean he's mm-hmm. moving fast and he's aware of what it costs to have all this stuff happening all these people all this uh, uh you know um the cars and the costumes and then the extras it's, and, and he uh he's cognizant of it and he is managing it actively yeah. in a way that i think you're right he doesn't get credit for it because people don't realize but i guess it has to do with it over the years he's learned that if he can stay within some sort of you know uh, financial uh, uh, constraints, he can make the movie he wants to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he always gives himself a little room, you know, for other things. You know, 
And I, you know, I always appreciated that. You know, we went through that actually on Black Klansman. Uh, we didn't think we were going to have full orchestra at first, just because of the resources. And Spike said, no, no, the money's there. We're going to make sure we get full orchestra, and that's what we got. Great. Yeah. And it, we're, and it pays off, because, I mean, the, the big yeah. moments when it when it swells, it fills the house. It's big. Yeah, beautiful. beautiful. Tom, how was it for you in terms of where did you end up mixing this film and how much time and back and forth? What Were there test screenings? How would you describe kind of your iteration of, of the collaboration? There were no test screenings um, that I was aware of unless they happened before I got involved. Um, yeah. It was a quick mix. I think we completed it in four weeks. Wow. Uh, and then we had we wow. had to do an Atmos version. That took another day or two. Um, uh, and obviously the deliverables, you know, so I think the whole thing was probably completed in five weeks. Where did you end up uh, mixing? I did um, the, fi- the the first pass of the final at C5, uh, to mm-hmm. Stockton's uh, place. And then uh, we did um, a final week of of um, playback and touch-ups at Soundtrack. And we did the uh, Atmos version back at C5. Okay. And then That's we went back to Soundtrack again to check it. And we were kind of back and forth between C5 and Soundtrack. So yeah. uh, basically, uh, you know, in both places. Uh, it was the first, uh, it was actually the first feature film that I mixed entirely in the box, just as an aside, which was oh, uh, wow. a, great, a great experience for me. I mean, I really enjoyed doing that. So wow. for the sound geeks out there, that, uh, <laughs> that was... <laughs> That's great. What was the reason for that? Well, I had been sort of working towards it for the past couple of years, but uh, I had never taken a whole feature. I'd done a few documentaries. I'd done some television stuff, uh, but I'd never done a whole feature uh, in the box and uh, all in one session, music, dialogue, sound effects, everything. Uh, And, you know, because I think in in years past, the the technology just really wasn't quite ready for that uh, kind of large undertaking. But uh, it's finally gotten there, and it's working great. That's great. For you, Terrence, where, where did you end up uh, scoring and also capturing all the other elements of this kind of 1970s rock band? Yeah, well, we recorded the band here at the um, uh, Esplanade Studios in New Orleans. And we did that first. And we, once we got all of those elements together and picked the takes that we liked, we took that to L.A., to Sony Studios. And... Um, recorded the, uh, the orchestra there. Greg Hayes was the engineer that uh, we used, who did, he did a phenomenal job. And those musicians, man, they're they are always amazing. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because when I first started working with Spike, Spike was such a New York guy, he didn't want to go to L.A. You know, um, mm-hmm. but then we were, kind of, we were kind of forced into it because of what was happening with the studio scene in New York. And we went to London at first. We had a great experience there. But I can't remember the movie, but when we first went to L.A., we had such a phenomenal experience. You know, he it's like one of those things. It's like being a LeBron James hater. You know, you may hate it, but you can't deny his talent. <laughs> 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 you know, so, I, you know, it, it was one of those things, you know, because I told him I'd worked there before, and I said, man, listen, everything just runs like clockwork when you're there because those guys do films all the time and it yeah. was the perfect situation for this film because uh uh we've had such a great reputation working with those musicians 
that the contractor told me, you know, that when as soon as they hear that we're coming to do a spike project, everybody in the orchestra wants to sign up to be a part of it. What can you guys say about your film editor, Barry Alexander Brown? He's also a longtime collaborator with Spike. How does he influence how you guys work? Because I imagine if production is somewhat expedited, I can't imagine that the edit was. I mean, is he a, is he a director that the edit gets locked quick and early, or is it always kind of a rolling edit? How would you describe your collaboration um, with your editor? Well, for me, uh, I think Barry sets the tone, honestly, because he's a very smart guy, and when Spike will bring me in you know, sit down and watch the film with him and Barry, Barry doesn't miss any details. You know what I mean? He's very sharp. And I remember, I can't remember the film, but I remember the first time I saw him work like that, I was like, "Uh uh-oh, got to be on your game. (laughs) You know, because this guy is watching every, he's catching everything. And then the editorial decisions that they make are very smart, I think, in terms of pushing the story forward. Uh, I just, you know, obviously Barry and, Barry and Spike are like Marty and Thelma. I mean, they, they've worked together so closely for so long that they almost become one entity. And, um, uh, you know, they, they work in a way where uh, very much like Marty and Thelma, where Barry will come in before Spike usually and um, and work with us, you know, doing dialogue, pre-dubbing and that kind of thing, uh, laying out the final for the first time. Um, and he almost acts as kind of like a gatekeeper uh, mm. in a way and makes sure that things are right as far as he can see and that we're, we're, we're adhering to what he thinks Spike would want in the mix. Uh, and mm-hmm. then Spike comes in and, and then we work all together. So it's, it's a very collaborative relationship and, and Barry and, you know, Spike almost can finish each other's sentences. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, I, I I worked with Barry actually a number of times before, and I'm always been super impressed with him in terms of his. I think together yeah. with Spike, they have an ability to look at the material and reimagine how it could, the puzzle pieces could fit together, uh, and that I think that in, in some ways, Barry must help Spike to you know bust out of any preconceptions he had during the production. You know, there's things in in the final of the film where. You know, oh, that scene now goes there. I didn't really, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. things that you would, you know, you, you, only, only, you know, people who were inside the the tent would know that. Oh, that's all flipped around from the way it was when we first thought about it. And, 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 and in fact, it works now beautifully. But it, it, it right. takes some uh, outside the box thinking to uh, to imagine ways to put the pieces together uh, so radically, and even things like repeating lines that aren't repeated. And the, yeah. the, the, in, the, in editorial, he'll say something like, there's some things in the, in the Kwame Choi speech or a couple places where someone says something and they say it again, which is actually just editorial repetition. It's not that the actor right. said it twice. Um, right. Exactly. That's great. It's, it's, pretty, it's, pretty, it's pretty powerful stuff, and it's very unusual. You know? uh, I mean, I, I, think the scene, okay. I think the scene with Harry Belafonte, man, it's one of the most powerful. I oh, think. yeah. Yeah. I love the way that's put together. On the day of the shoot, how did that come together, Drew? Like, wh- wh- how much time did they have with him, and what was the direction that they gave him? With Harry Belfonte, we yeah. had just the one day. wasn't a lot of time. In fact, we uh, it was I think less than a day. He was. We had stuff to do outside that house on the same day with the, with the uh, 
with all the background uh, actors. So we didn't have a, a whole day with Harry there, but he uh, um, he was prepped and it was very. Everyone was super excited and honored to have him there, and the scene itself was very powerful. And the people, uh, the crew, the actors, the, the background uh, players were all extremely moved by the scene because it's hard not to be. It's incredibly powerful stuff, and Harry was uh, amazing as you see, but we didn't have a lot of time with him. He, he didn't do it that much. I think also Spike didn't want to you know, wear him out. He didn't make him do it too many times. Uh, he was prepared. Um, but it's, uh, and then they had, um, had a lot of cameras to shoot it. So yeah. we could cover him from different angles simultaneously. And then, uh, and then we I think turned around and shot back at the, uh, the people. Then we actually played music. He, Spike likes to have music on set. And it's always a surprise to me when he'll be like, Drew, play, play something. I'm like, we're quickly trying to find a, a, a track on your, uh, on your phone, on my iPad, to try and play something out of a speaker. So I was pretty much always had a, a powered speaker standing by to play something because he wants to build mood or he wants to create. So a lot of the, uh, the scenes of people uh, reacting are he'll, he'll be playing music to try and create mood and then we'll drop it down to... Uh, uh, you know, drop it down so he can we can record it. But there's a lot of music around on set. He likes it. Mm. He likes. He feels like it creates a, a, a mood or a vibe on set that that will be conducive for him getting the performances he wants. What, what can you guys say? Because with any director who likes to move fast, not do many many takes, or just be kind of aware of the energy of the set. Drew, how does it work from what you're able to capture your coverage to handling? it over to Tom. How can you guys describe your guys' uh, from both stands, from production and post-production? Well, uh, on the production end, I can say we, you know, he wants ideally to get as much, you know, usable production track as he can. He's, he's, he's very keen about that when you talk about it with him, but he doesn't want to wait for it. So our challenge is to keep up uh, and to try and just think ahead. It's like, okay, what are our, you know, what are the things that we can do ahead of time to try and be ready? Because he's very flexible on set. He's moving this way. He's moving that way. He's thinking on his feet and all of a sudden deciding, okay, we're going to have him go all the way out the door and we'll keep the scene going. And they're going to go down the steps like, Oh wait. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, he, he, uh, you, you need to try and, and stay on your toes all the time, but you know, hopefully you're never gonna be ahead of him, but at least be able to keep up with him. And, yeah. um, uh, but part of it's that, I'm using a lot of microphones. Most of the actors are wearing a lavalier as well as we have a boom and some planted mics or a couple booms on many occasions, uh, which gives us a lot of material and post for the sound editing team to try and sift through to see if I couldn't get everything on the moment. There's pieces there that they can, uh, uh, they can, you know, patch in. He also likes wild tracks. He understands, the validity of doing wild tracks on set. And he, it's one of the things I really appreciate about uh, working with Spike is that he does something that a lot of directors don't, which is if I say to him, you know, and it's part of it's just respecting. If I say, Spike, I think I want to just, can I get this one line wild? He's instantly, yes, boom, stop, record it. You know, you, it's very hard to get a lock up and get you to record a wild track on a lot mm -hmm. of sets, but Spike totally understands the use of having them. And uh, sometimes it's like, I'll know, oh, I just have need this one word or this line 
or something, mm-hmm. uh, and it'll help you cut the scene together. And, and he wants it, and he gets it. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, in the mix, he's he's always favoring production. Uh, the you know, the, I think in Black Klansman there was very little ADR. Most of it was uh, for television versions and that kind of thing. Uh, and group, you know, there was mm-hmm. quite a bit of group ADR, background voices uh, in the crowd scenes. But uh, in terms of principal character ADR, we I don't think we had very many lines at all. Uh, and most of the mm-hmm. time, I think generally in Spike's films, uh, he He's always asking if the production can be used, and if, and in most cases, when ADR is used, it's used either for expositional purposes, they want to change a line, or or, uh, or add a line uh, that that was never recorded. Um, uh, but and very rarely is is stuff replaced unless there's some terrible technical problem or the performance is subpar. Hmm. There was a couple well, locations know, of locations where, like, by the waterfall, the location by the waterfall, I was like, okay, you know, it's going to be there. We're going to have that water. Or the walking along <laughs> by the, the, the stream. You know, people would, yeah, wouldn't the, believe that the walking by the stream is actually them talking, but it is, even when it's yeah, Yes, it is. That, that was an, actually, that was probably one of the most challenging scenes in the movie for me because the track was very noisy. There was a lot of water noise, you know, river babbling. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and and I had to process that track fairly severely. Um, Thank you and, very much. I was like, I could tell the, it was the track. I was like, no one was going to believe that this is really them. And, and, and to, com- to, to, to compound the problem is you have both Temptation singing Ball of Confusion, which is a very dynamic right. song with lots of lyrics. Uh, right. That, you know, when lyrics are played under dialogue, that's like that's like the biggest challenge a mixer can have. So mixing that scene, you know, that was that was a tough one. Yeah. It, and the scene by the river with the FBI good. agent was was basically you know because there was no music, there was uh, it was just a matter of you know trying to make a natural sounding background and get the dialogue to balance to out the because it was very hard for yeah. us because there's that waterfall. It's a real waterfall. Yeah. Pouring behind yeah. them, I said, "Thankfully, wait a second. Wow. I was like, at least it's in the picture. As long as you see it, <laughs> if you don't see it, you're gonna be like, what the hell are they in a laundromat? What is that noise?'" I don't know if you guys have ever had this conversation with Spike, but uh, listening to Tommy talk about the lyric thing on the dialogue, it it uh, it reminded me. I was talking to him about using strong milk, a lot of content on the dialogue, and he goes. <laughs> It has been scientifically proven that people can concentrate on more than one thing at one time. I don't know if they <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, but, you, but you know, the interesting thing about him to me, man, I think I've never experienced this with any other director. And I, when I tell people this, they don't believe me. But once, you know, Spike and myself work out what the thematic material is going to be for the film, I don't hear from him until we get to this stage, until we get to this coding stage. Wow. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't want to hear anything until we get to the scoring stage, which, you know, when I first started working with him, man, it was like I was just a nervous wreck in prime time. But now it, it I look at it as him having a lot of trust, which I don't want to betray. But the other thing that I learned is the reason why he does that, which is actually brilliant when you think about it, is that he wants to hear the music the way the audience is going to hear it for the first time. Mm-hmm. With right. the full orchestration. That's cool. I love just to find out about Flip Zimmerman's Adam Driver's character. There's always these moments of him being 
wiretap or, or not wiretap, but having a, you know, a microphone buried on him as part of his investigation of the clan. What happens in that situation when you have a microphone? Is that track ever used? I wonder, like, is that an opportunity to play some mic? Does it really matter? Did they ever think about using that? They almost always, he almost always had a mic underneath the shirt that we were taping on top of. Okay. He usually has one on his chest above that mic because that, that was always messing with us having that thing there because it blocks it. But the one that we were taping on, we almost never used. We actually used a separate one, but there were many occasions where he had two mics on him, one which was a prop and one which I was using to record with. Are there other considerations when it comes to the time period? I wonder, you know, even for you, Tom, are you guys trying to make it sound like it's calling that, that the fidelity is of the seventies? Like, were there other moments where it's like a call on opportunity to get that maybe thinner dying, less dynamic sound just because of the time period? I didn't really think of it as a period thing. It was more of just a story expositional thing. You know, you just want to fuck up the, the voice to sound like it's coming through a tinny little speaker. Uh, and I don't think the sound of a tinny little speaker was any different in 1970 than it was today. Probably the same kind of filter for phone effect, you know, for 30 years. And it mm-hmm. really doesn't change. When you're talking about the phone rings, that's a whole other story. And that's, you know, stuff like that. The car sounds, the phone rings, uh, teletypes, typewriters. Uh, those kind of sounds are definitely period specific. And that's, you know, that's obviously the purview mostly of the sound design, sound editor. Right. Who's choosing that stuff. And Phil and his team. But uh, I say on, on set, like when we were doing the Kwame Tori sequence, you know, generally you would want to have a, 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 if you're doing it purely for uh, sound recording purposes, I would not have a, a speaker live to the room, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd try and kill the uh, the house and, and be able to record him clean. But Spike felt like, you know, we want to fill the room with his voice coming out of speakers. And so I set up that microphone through a mixer, coming back out to a couple of speakers to the house. So, you know, I said, okay, it's going to affect the way it sounds. But, you know, he says, yeah, I want it to sound like we're in a room with, you know, it's coming out of a PA. I said, okay, we'll do it. And, you know, I, I ended up recording it with multiple ways with like a mic in the room to get the speakers and one, you know, a couple one on him and went up, he's the one on, on the podium, which worked great, you know, but you're going to have the room sound built in and, the, and there was, he wanted people to call out and I was like, okay, we'll put a mic up to get the audience. Uh, yeah. But then, you know, it's gonna be, you're going to be married to that stuff. And Spice said, yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm okay to have the, 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 the speaker in the room. I want to hear that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's one thing, he can make those decisions. Yeah. And that, that all worked out very well. I mean, I used, I used, all of those tracks, I think. I mean, we had the close mic. I don't know if it was the actual yeah. prop mic or the microphone was on the podium. I don't know if you were using that or, he, or there was another plant mic somewhere that we didn't see. It was actually, uh, but, it actually, funny enough, it, it's, there was a plant mic there on the podium and the one that was the prop mic, which I had gone through a, a, a place to find a, a good sounding period mic. It actually sounded better than I thought. And I ended up, I think most of it's that one. Uh, well, I, we had all of that. It matched when he turned head. back on and out. Right, right. Uh, That's awesome. And then I also added, you know, an effect, a reverb effect to that sequence to his voice as well. And yeah. I varied it depending on the on the you know the camera angle. Uh, when we're further away, I use a little more. When we're close up, I use less. You hear more room. Yeah, you hear more of the reverb. Yeah. 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 
Lastly, I'd love just to discuss the closing of the film. Uh, it seems that, like any Spike Lee film, there's an incredible message, an important message that he wants to leave with the audience. A big reason, you know, why the film inspired him or the story inspired him. And in this one, it ends with, you know, events from the, the past year or so. What can you say about the discussion of building up to that moment uh, through sound and music? How, how is he arriving at this final kind of point where it's like he leaves the audience with, hey, this is something that I want you to think about as you walk. I want you to talk about. And it's felt it's felt sonically it's it's an important message. So how, how do you guys describe how he talked to you about that? Obviously, Terrence's score led up to that moment uh, through this began beginning. I think in the in the sequence where uh, uh, Ron and Patrice are are breaking up, uh, and she tells him that she can't see him anymore. Uh, and then you know they hear the noise, they knock at the door, and they get their guns out and they go to the window. And then we're at the clan rally, and they're burning the cross. And and the score plays through all of that, and building to uh, the way Spike asked me to do it was to start with the um, blood and soil chant in the surrounds in the back and move it forward onto the screen uh, as, uh-huh. as it, zooming in on that guy's eyes in the mask and then cuts to the uh, the march. And from that point on, there was no augmentation to any of that sound. That was all the iPhone camera sound that, you know, from the wow. original from the original uh, there was nothing there was nothing sweetened there was no foley that was all just the sound from those from those uh those mm-hmm. that footage what about you for terrence how would you describe that final cue well it's interesting because me and Spike had a little discussion about it i wanted to go another direction but he wanted to have the theme you know like i said if he falls in love with a piece of music man he'll find a place to use it so he said that he wanted to have that theme. And I, and honestly, at first, I didn't see it. You know, I couldn't see it. Because for me, I was trying to connect the movie, connect the ending to the to the, to the the rest of the film. Uh, but when we did it in the studio, I saw where he was coming from, you know, because it does make a final statement. And it makes a, a, a very universal statement about what's going on in our country. And I thought, you know, just watching it, Watching watching the edited footage for me was and and I would watch it every day. It still was a very powerful moment because it made everything in the film so relevant. You know because exactly. you know exactly. um, the, the yeah the moment when John David says you know uh, we would never elect a person like that as president. You know it. It, 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 at the premiere, there was there was there was huge laughter because people realize where we are now in this country, and I think yeah. what he does so what Spike has always done so brilliantly, and I think he's just getting better at it. He knows how to take serious topics and shows us so many sides of it, and I and this is just my own opinion. I don't know because we've never talked about it, but it seems as though he gets he hits it so hard that there has to be moments of levity to give you a break, you know, and then he'll come back to the topic and then he'll, you'll have a little more levity. And then at the end of this film, he's really, he really hits you over the head, you know, with, okay, we all have to wake up to what's really going on in this country. I thought he yeah. really turn it back. No, and that's, and that's, it, that's one of the things that's really impressive about it because there is some, there, it's a lot of fun to see some of the scenes earlier on. You know, there is, uh, there's a lot of, 
uh, entertainment value in the plot and in the scenes there is some levity there but it's all adding up to because you couldn't sit through an entire film of that final bit it would ha- at some point you just get you know numb to it uh, if it was yeah. just a documentary for, about about you know the situation we're in but instead it and, has and, to, and look, to, and, you know, to counterbalance it and it, but the, and the final impact is as devastating as it can be you know Look, look, I thought there was another brilliant choice that you made, you know, because we're sitting here talking about everything that we've done throughout the production, you know, the music, the shooting of it, the editing, the, the mixing, all of that. And he he hits you with this powerful statement at the end of the film. And then at the end of that, there's silence. Yeah. Just silence. And I remember being at the, at the premiere, when the silence came up, you could hear a pin drop in the theater. Like nobody wow. moved, and a, friends of mine who have gone to see the film have told me that the same thing has happened when they viewed the film when it gets to that portion. So yeah. you know, to me, that's a brave choice because most directors, <laughs> when there's silence, that's where they bring me in. Hey man, I need you to fill this up. You know what I mean? But him, he's like, no, 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 no. We just want to have it go silent and have the flag go from colors to black and white. Oh yeah, that see, that is, is, is it's super powerful, and you're right. It plays over absolute pin drop sounds in the theater, and all of, everyone there is just like, you know, processing. Yeah, yeah. Then it breaks into that great Prince song at the end. Of the yes. Yeah, yeah. Spike yeah. Spike found that in a vault somewhere on a cassette. That, right. that recording comes from this cassette. <laughs> wow, really? Right. Right. So I did not. I did yeah. not know that track at all. I was like, I yeah, like, Prince. <laughs> Spike found that somewhere, somewhere, and nobody has ever heard it before. And we got a, at the end of the mix, we got a QC note from Focus about the fact that it just cuts off. And they Mm. said, you know, that's a, you know, rejection. We can't do that. No, that's the way it is. You know, we had to tell them, no, that's that's the way, that is actually the way the original recording is. I think the tape ran out, actually. It just stops. Right. Right, wow. Yeah, there was no one final thing I'd like to say about Spike, you know, in a climate. I remember when I first started working with Spike, you know, he was labeled this this radical dude. And most people thought that when you went to his set, there would be nothing but black people working on all the projects, right? And one of the things that I've respected about Spike throughout our relationship, he gives the best person the opportunity to do the job. And if you do the job, you will keep your job. I've watched him fire uh, a focus cruise, you know, when we were doing More Better Blues. I've watched him take on the Teamsters, you know. So when you're working with Spike's crew, I always feel honored. You know, I've known Tommy's work for a long time. And I remember the first time I met him, I was like, wow, this is dude that did all these films, you know, and now we're working together. <laughs> you know, so for me, it's an honor. It's always an honor and a pleasure working with these guys. And I thank you for giving me a chance to do a little podcast and sit on and talk to them. Tell them thank you. I love it. It's, it's funny how, how often, we, a lot of times, production ever cross paths with uh, Post and vice versa. So it's always fun to hear that. No, it's a great, it's a great opportunity. I never get to uh, uh, meet <laughs> these guys. And actually, and congratulate them on their amazing work. Because, 
beautiful. I was really uh, blown away. Well, um, for anyone who hasn't had a chance to see Black's Klansman, it's still in theaters. It's going to be in theaters. We're going to be hearing about this film as we roll into um, award season because it's a film that needs to be recognized. I feel like, like I mentioned, it's just it's such an important message. I'm super excited to capture this conversation with you guys. So thank you again. Thank you. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. All right. Thanks again for tuning in and listening to my chat with the sound team of Black Klansmen. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com.